Meaning in life comes from God's redeeming love gifted to us through Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father in heaven, this morning as we close out the year in this worship service and as we look ahead to the next year, I pray that you would remind us uh, that our lives are meaningful. Indeed, we have a wonderful life, but it's not because of our value, it's because of your love. So remind us, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Take your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 8 through 14. As we hear the preacher closing out the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books, there is no end. And much study is weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I wish I had never been born. You may recall these words from George Bailey in the beloved Christmas uh, classic, It Is a Wonderful Life. The movie was directed by Frank Capra and starred Jimmy Stewart, both of whom had just returned from service in World War II. It was released on a Friday, December 20th, 1947, just in time for Christmas, and the expectation of this movie being a blockbuster hit was great. The movie cost $3 million to make, and today's standard, that's chump change. But $3 million, and that weekend, it grossed a whopping $1 million. It was an epic failure by filmmaking standards. I read uh, or heard a report in World Magazine about the film's history, and I quote from that, that piece, many, mo- many moviegoers passed on the film about a suicidal man who gets to see what the world would be like without him in favor of more optimistic stories. So the movie was a failure. It was put on a shelf and stayed there in a collection of movies that were shelved like It's a Wonderful Life. And it stayed there until it fell into the public domain in the 70s due to an error. And TV stations started showing It's a Wonderful Life just simply to fill programming time. And it became a classic. Well, you know the story, the plot follows George Bailey who viewed life being meaningful only if he could get out of Bedford Falls and travel and 
be successful, to make his millions. That was his understanding of a life of meaning. But the problem for George is that he was stuck in that miserable little town, as he called it, running that small savings and loan. Meaning in life, what he wanted in life was to be freed from the wretched life that he lived in Bedford Falls. He sought success but found failure. And so he comes to that tragic thought, I wish I had never been born. And as we close out 2021, hopefully none of us have wished that. And as we go into 2022, I wanted us to consider the question, really questions, where do we find meaning in life? What do we want out of life? George wanted to travel. George wanted to be successful. He wanted to make his millions. What, what do we want? The book of Ecclesiastes was, was written, I think, to teach us about the meaning of life, what we should want out of life. It, it shows us in our text uh, today, which is the conclusion, verses 8 through 14, that we read, that, that there is a flawed humanistic conclusion to life. And then secondly, the, this chapter, this text, issues a stern fatherly warning to us about that humanistic conclusion to life. And then we're directed in just two verses, the very last two verses of the book of Ecclesiastes, to what I'm calling a, the truth, the right conclusion of the matter, a true biblical worldview that shows us where meaning is in life. So let's look first at, at the flawed humanistic conclusion, verses 8, 8 through 11. You know, King Solomon epitomizes a man reaching the pinnacle of success. Of course, that pinnacle of success is by worldly standards. He had wisdom. He had wives. He had wealth. He had power. He had possessions. He had it all in many people's minds. More than any other king of Israel, even more than his father, King David. But with all his success, the book of Ecclesiastes depicts Solomon as coming to the conclusion that life is meaningless. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And his life ended tragically, alienated from God, being influenced by his foreign wives and turning to false religion and idolatry. And this is just conjecture on my part. Maybe at the end of Solomon's life, maybe he had a similar thought as George Bailey. I wish I'd have never been born. The preacher's words represent Solomon's view and perspective on life. It's a limited view. It's a limited perspective under the sun, meaning a perspective from one's feet being planted solidly on the earth. And his conclusion, the bottom line that he came to after all the previous 10 chapters plus so many verses is equally limited and skewed. In verse 8, that's his bottom line. 
after all the data had been gathered, after all the analysis had taken place, the, the, the preacher comes to this conclusion about life under the sun. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. And the conclusion is simply this, there's really no ultimate meaning in life. What one might want out of life would eventually never amount to much of anything. And, and so the preacher says, you might as well just eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow you die. And I would suggest to you that that has always been somewhat of a prevailing ideal for fallen humanity. In verse 9, the narrator calls him wise and indicates he engaged his work diligently and with great care. And here the narrator tells us that, that the preacher let, left a, a legacy of, of teaching people knowledge. And the legacy is described in verse 10. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly wrote words of truth. But what's interesting is that his conclusion is vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I don't know about you, but that's hardly a legacy I want to leave to my children and grandchildren and to you as, as a church. Is pleasant speech and upright truth, is that really what's going on here? Dr. Tremper Longman writes, his words are troubling and depressing. And here's the problem with the preacher. He sought words of truth, but his perspective was limited and it was flawed. He was under the sun. This is a hugely important principle, that the preacher rightly observed life in this fallen world as he saw it, but he saw it from a finite and limited humanistic perspective. And what is the effect of the preacher's humanistic perspective? We see this in verse 11. It is that of the, the problem of verse 11 is the identity of the shepherd. You will notice in the ESV version of your Bible that shepherd is capitalized and thus links the shepherd to God. And again, Dr. Longman understands the shepherd reference, referencing the preacher or wisdom teacher in general. That's who Tripper uh, Longman suggests is the, uh, the one that is the shepherd here. So normally shepherds lead by using a staff, but, but, but note this shepherd goads people. Shepherds are shown in Scripture to be caring and, and tender towards the flock. But this shepherd drives. He's not gentle. He, he's nailing. It is interesting that both the goad and the nail sting when used. So the shepherd is not God. But it is the humanistic way of understanding the world. So verse 11 tells us that the preacher's wisdom, his little s shepherding in wisdom stings. That is, it's harmful. It is misguided. How stinging is his conclusion? There's no ultimate meaning in life. That's pretty stinging. If one really embraced that, then why would one even seek to get out of bed in the morning? Maybe like George Bailey, the, the best response is to jump off a bridge. Whatever we might want 
want out of life. If we live under this humanistic worldview, we'll in the end count for absolutely nothing. Maybe you would agree with me that that is incredibly stinging as well as depressing. And so may we understand the hopelessness and the tragedy of the humanistic worldview that is written here by the preacher and that I believe is adopted by many even in our day. And this leads to verse 12, which is an urgent fatherly warning. The preacher's conclusion is soundly criticized and rejected by this warning. The, the reference to the son in verse 12 should be taken to mean the reader. Actually, you and me. This warning is for us as much as it was for the original hearers of Ecclesiastes. Considering the, the narrator's critical assessment of the preacher's worldview, he warns, don't buy into this preacher's erroneous conclusions about life being meaningful. Or meaningless, rather. The, the last part of the verse, of making many books, there is no end. Much study is weariness of the flesh, re reveals the futility of studying humanistic philosophies like that of the preacher. It, it is exhausting. It is ultimately dangerous. And the danger of the preacher's humanistic philosophy is that it goads people to embrace these skewed philosophies rather than leading them to the truth. It entraps people in error by, by nailing these humanistic philosophies into their lives rather than establishing them on the foundations of objective truth, God's word. And the implication of the warning is if we embrace these false conclusions of the preacher, this humanistic worldview, we will wind up like the preacher and conclude all is vanity. Life is meaningless. This perspective, you can find many quotes of people who really do embrace the preacher's humanistic worldview here. One is Jean-Paul Sartre who said, man is useless, is a useless passion. It is meaningless that we live and it's meaninglessness that we die. How tragic. May, may we hear the sobering warning of this fatherly advice and flee from embracing that humanistic conclusion. Let me just say that when it comes to matters of worldview, I think every Christian needs to understand the man-centered, humanistic worldview. And so when I say we should flee from it, I in no way am saying that we should not study it and understand it, but we must not embrace it. We need to be, to be able to speak about it, to point out the, the falsehoods in it and direct people to the truth, the gospel. But we must not embrace it. That is the warning of this father. And so now we come to verses 13 through 14. The true biblical conclusion 
how we are, we are to understand what the preacher is saying here from a Christ-centered, let's say, biblical uh, worldview. And the good news is that we're able to do that as we come to the Bible because the Bible gives us a heavenly perspective that leads us to the true conclusion, the right conclusion about life's meaning for those who fear the Lord and who keep his commandments. I remember the the very first airplane flight that I ever had. I was about, I don't know, five or six years old, and I flew from a tobacco farm in North Carolina. Of course, we didn't fly from the tobacco farm, but we drove to probably Raleigh and flew to Washington, D.C. And I just remember as a little kid who only knew at that time tobacco fields and tobacco barns and you know, the life on the farm, I just remember, I, I could not stop looking out the window of that airplane, seeing that, wow, there was so much more to my life <laughs> than that little farm on which I was being raised. And so, the, the, the landscape, I mean, being at that altitude gave me a much broader perspective, and it was, it was, it was mesmerizing to me. And and even as a little kid, I, it made an impression on me, obviously, but, but it made life, viewing life on that farm a little bit different. I, I had a, a much bigger perspective. Now, that's a lesson from a five- or six-year-old kid, but isn't that lesson true, though? That the preacher, he didn't have that perspective that only altitude can give he had the perspective of his feet being planted firmly on the ground. But I believe the word of God is almost like taking flight, soaring up to tens of thousands of feet and looking down with a much bigger perspective. Not saying that we'll know everything, not saying that we can connect all the dots. We surely cannot and we surely will not, but it gives us a perspective that transcends life just walking here on this earth. The conclusion, the bottom line of a limited humanistic worldview is life is meaningless. And I really don't care what you call that. that. Whatever you call a worldview that is not a biblical worldview matters not to me. You come to the same conclusion. It's a man-centered worldview and the best you could do is that ultimately life is meaningless. That's, that's my conviction on the matter. It may not be yours. Verse 13 began setting the record straight. It gives the true, undeniable, and ultimate conclusion from God's perspective. We cannot deny the preacher's observations of this fallen world that he has recounted in much of the book of Ecclesiastes. We can say... And Ken's teaching a Sunday school class on justice, but we can say life is not fair. Uh, justice is often not done in this world. Life often hurts. Life appears meaningless at times. It does seem like the best thing, if not the only thing, that there is left to do is simply to eat and drink and be merry as best we can for tomorrow we die. But the end of the matter 
from a biblical worldview, from an altitude, from heaven's perspective, as we see recorded in the scriptures, is that life is meaningful because of fear for God and keeping his commandments out of a response to his love. And so what I'm getting at today is that because we have been loved by God, because he has poured out his redeeming love upon us, our response is fear for God and keep his commandments that we have a life in Christ, that we have a hope. Remember last week in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19, the Lamb of God ransoms sinners from a life of futility and gives them a life of meaning, a life of hope, a life with a future. That's what the redeeming love of God does for us that's where our meaning in life lies in the redeeming love of God that enables us to fear God and to keep his commandments. That's our duty, fear God. Reverence, honor, respect, worship. He's the ultimate being. He's the sovereign ruler. He's the of life. He is awful, that is the Almighty, and demands reverence. We fear Him because He loved us. Our duty is also to keep His commandments revealed in the Scriptures. We uh, tend to think the Christian life is, is so complicated that we need shelves and shelves and shelves of books in numerous Christian bookstores and online, I get it. Uh, and that we just need to read all of these how-to books about the, but, but really the Bible just says life comes down to fearing God and keeping His commands. It comes down to a heart issue. It comes down to receiving the Holy Spirit that the love of Christ might be poured out in our hearts and then our response would be love for Him, fear, and keeping His commands. And Jesus as much says this when he summarizes the Ten Commandments. He's talking about duty, obeying the Ten Commandments. And Jesus said that the Ten Commandments in Matthew 22 are summarized in this way. Love God and love your neighbor. Love of God moves us to fear and obey him. And we can love God only because he first loved us. The, the love of God for us, that is us sinners, is demonstrated in the Father giving His Son in the redemption that we have only through Christ Jesus in His work that has made us God's children. When Carl read from 1 John 4 earlier, verse 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world that we might live through Him. And in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, I must say that, that we don't see the gospel just enumerated here 
in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and even in verse 13, but it's there. The end of the matter, what life is all about, what we should be seeking in life more than anything else is to fear God and obey his commands. Why? Because of the gospel. God has gifted us with his son and has redeemed us. He has demonstrated his love for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we find verse 14, human history will culminate in this day of judgment, 2 Corinthians 5. Paul says that all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ as all humanity. But this day, however, for those who fear God and keep his commandments as a response for being loved by God, will be a day of joy and celebration, not of terror and death. We are secure in Christ. We stand before the almighty judgment seat of God. We stand before Christ, the judge who will come again. And we stand in him securely. We have a glorious future. We have a hope. In short, these two verses, the, the, narr the narrator declares this, this wonderful truth that life has meaning for the people of God because we are God's in Christ. Because of Jesus, we are his beloved. Because of Jesus, we are his redeemed. Because of Jesus, we are sons and daughters of the king. Because of Jesus, we're called God's treasured possessions. Because of Jesus, we are his and he is ours. Because of Jesus, we have a hope of heaven. We have an eternal destination we have a future. It's a wonderful life. Actually, is based on a, a story written by Philip Van Doren Stern. And that uh, story is entitled, The Greatest Gift. I did not know this. But I learned something this Christmas about It's a Wonderful Life. As I've watched It's a Wonderful Life so many times, in my opinion, and this is my opinion, the story seems to communicate that we have meaning in life because we have impacted other people because we have made a difference in other people's lives because we have value. In essence, as I think about Stern's story that is the basis for the Capra film, It's a Wonderful Life, I, I tend to think that maybe one way that we could take the meaning or the essence of this story and this movie is that the greatest gift is us. As we seek to have meaning and as we realize how much, if we weren't here, how many people would be affected by that. I mean, I, I hope I'm not treading on thin ice on this hot December day. But... Uh, there's something about It's a Wonderful Life that maybe 
more akin to the humanistic worldview than to the biblical worldview. And if I've just burst your balloon, will you forgive me? But I will say this. The title of Stern's story, The Greatest Gift, is exactly (laughs) what the narrator and the writer of Ecclesiastes is wanting us to come away with today. It reflects something more. The scriptural teaching that, that the true meaning in life is not our success, is not how much value we have because of our impact in the lives of others. It, it's, it, it's not based on those things, but, but the greatest gift is the love gift that God gave us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That person and work that has so radically changed our lives, that, that demonstration of love that has made all the difference in our lives, from having a life that we would characterize as meaningless to a life that is full of hope and meaning and purpose and a future and life and salvation. And it's not because we're impactful in other people's lives. It's because we've been impacted by the greatest gift ever, the love of Jesus Christ. And dear brothers and sisters, as we close out 2021 and as we began 2022 in just a few days, I want us to think about what do I want to get out of life? Does my life count? And I want you to think about it in terms of hearing the warning of Ecclesiastes, rejecting that humanistic worldview, but embracing the glorious truth that we have the greatest gift ever, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And his love for us It's why our life has meaning and purpose, why we hope and why we have a future. And that that love poured out upon our hearts that has radically changed us is the reason we can follow the mandate given in Ecclesiastes 13. The reason we can do our duty as we're called to do in Ecclesiastes 13 because he first loved us. And how can we not respond in love to him through fear and obedience? May this set us on a heavenly course this coming year, resting and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the greatest gift, the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been, we have spent all of Advent thinking and meditating upon this gift. And now, Lord, as we, as we close out this year and as we soon to begin another one, I pray, oh God, that, that we would be mindful of all that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would endeavor to fear you, that we would endeavor to obey you, not because it's just our sheer duty, but really as a response of love for the great love that you have shown us. Be pleased with us, be 
Enable us to bless you, O Lord, and we give you thanks for the greatest gift, the gift of your redeeming love gifted to us through Christ. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.